Listener Production. I think you have to have a big heart in life, you know, like it, it comes and goes so fast and it's it's gone pretty quick and you've, you've got to enjoy yourself and you've got to feel good about what you do in life and, and don't get me wrong, I've made lots of mistakes in my life too, you know, and you've got to learn from those and you've got to sort of pick yourself back up when something doesn't go your way and, and get on with it. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep with our most loved personalities. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we all love and admire. I always cry and have a laugh, so you can expect some tears and laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. In this episode, I speak with superstar chef Curtis Stone. He's a TV host, entrepreneur, and the owner and chef of the Michelin star restaurant Maud in LA. I want to know how Curtis has built such a successful international career, but has still kept that lovely down-to-earth nature and is still a good Aussie bloke. Curtis and I caught up via his LA wardrobe because of the good acoustics in there. And while we chatted, he enjoyed a glass of wine. That's the sort of guy that he is. Curtis Stone, you are a man after my own heart. You have a sweet tooth. And the first thing you ever made was a caramel slice. Is that right? It's true. It's true. My granny, she was a good baker and she used to make fudge. She was from um, the north of England. And I used to like eating her fudge and, and occasionally would ask her if I could make it. And that's, I guess, how I sort of got... Um, interested in cooking, but my mum was a big Woman's Weekly uh, cookbook hoarder. She had thousands of them. So I would go through her Woman's Weekly cookbooks and the first recipe that I ever called my own, I took the topping of a caramel slice from one recipe book and then I took the base from another because I figured that was how you did your own thing and I called it my uh, caramel slice and it was bloody good actually. And what what I think is so fascinating about you is you are this superstar chef but you still maintain this gorgeous sort of earthy surfiness about you, if there's such a word as surfiness. It's funny. I get told that, you know, I'm humble. I have my feet on the ground a lot. And I'm not exactly sure why or where it comes from. I think I grew up with an older brother and anyone that grows up with an older brother knows that you get the odd clip behind the ear and you, you of course, have your feet firmly on the ground. And, God, I've, I've been very fortunate in my life. You know, I found a career that I love and I really genuinely enjoy it. And I, I enjoyed it as much when I was a 21-year-old apprentice as I do now as someone that owns a business. And I feel very lucky that I get to do what I love every day. And um, I know lots of people would tell you that anyway, but that's the truth for me. It really is. I, I get out of bed every morning excited to go and do what I do. And I think when that's the case, it's simple. It's also what I do is a blue-collar job. You know, like, let's face it, when you're a cook, you peel potatoes, you carry bags of vegetables from one side to the other, you chop on, you do all that stuff. And I've spent my whole life doing it and I love it. And it would feel weird if I um, had my head up in the clouds, I think. 
<laughs> because it is, it's a hard job, as you say. It's so physical. My youngest mm. sister trained as a chef and she worked in London as well. And the sorts of stories she has told me about kitchens, I used to think TV was bad in terms of a rough and tumble environment, but kitchens right. are pretty fiery places to be or, or they can be pretty scary places to be. They really can be. You know, I played Aussie Rules as a kid and loved that and I played pretty competitively. Um, I never made it, obviously, to the AFL, but I uh, otherwise I wouldn't be a cook. But I played pretty competitively and it was when I started cooking, I felt it was very similar. There was a captain, there was a coach and they had a head chef and whatever, restaurant manager, and you go out onto the field and you leave it all there, you give it everything you've got and you either win or you lose. And in a kitchen, it's kind of similar. You see, you know, you do your prep, you do your training, so you get ready for service, which is almost like the the whistle being blown and the, the game starting. And then you either go down or you have a successful service. And there's not much in between. And in that, you get to be a leader or you get to be a follower or you get to be a forward who kicks all the goals or you get to be the guy that does all the one percenters and it really I always did think about it and I thought god who would have known that playing Aussie rules would set me up for success in a kitchen but I really do think it did. I'm not au fait with Aussie rules in terms of what a one percenter is or this or that but (laughs) what would you be are you like the big massive goal kicker or what what's your role in the kitchen? Look, I think I probably played similar footy than I behave in the kitchen and it's I'm probably naturally a leader, but it's, it comes more from supporting others and I was always the loudest one on the field. I'd always talk more than anyone else, and I'd, but it was sort of to try and rally the troops and get them engaged and you have to do the same thing as the chef of a restaurant, you've got to be the captain of the team and you've got to get them all there, you've got to get them all excited, you've got to get them all pumped up and when you see someone start going down, you run over and you help them. So you're sort of the backstop in many ways. So not the guy that kicks all the goals. Could you be the cheerleader? Oh, cheerleader. <laughs> yeah. I've got my pom-poms at the start of every. <laughs> and your saucepans and all your wonderful new um, cook with Curtis, your knives and all those sorts of amazing things that, that you've got because... What I think also I find phenomenal about your story is you started out as a butcher at a hotel, didn't you, at the Southern Cross Hotel in Melbourne. So going from a butcher to now this sort of international Michelin star chef, I mean, wow, what a ride. It really has been and I guess it just comes down to really enjoying those simple tasks. And look, now I've got four or five different companies and I'm the CEO of all of them and i I'm active, you know, I work really hard in them, but I'm never happier when I go to my pie shop and I'm like, today I'm just making pies and I'm going to leave my phone in my car and I literally roll pastry and make pies all day long. And I think sometimes those really simple tasks, like being a butcher, are really quite rewarding. They're, they're simple and they're easy, but they're, they're, there's also a certain amount of skill that you need to, to do them. And the beautiful thing about the hospitality industry is you really do get to see the world and you really do get to meet all sorts of people from different walks of life and um, broaden your horizons in a pretty cool way. And you've done that. You've cooked for, for Oprah, for Ellen DeGeneres. You've been an apprentice for Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be highs and lows. Obviously. <laughs> oh, come on, tell me more, Curtis. <laughs> what was that like? Well, you know what? It was a funny time of my life because 
if you remember 08, in the US it was pretty dreadful. The economy was pretty stuck and I went from having a TV show and a few things sort of going my way and then my TV show got cancelled. We did 140 episodes of the one show and I thought, oh, no big problem. But then it happened right at 2008 when (laughs) nothing else got sent your way and all of a sudden I was unemployed and I was kind of thinking to myself, God, what do I do? I'd been asked the year prior to do The Apprentice and back when I had a job I said, no way, you know, I don't want to do that silly show. But then when they asked me the following year and I was unemployed, I thought, you know what, maybe I better do it. So I went and did it with lots of reservations because, you know, the people on it were pretty crazy. But I got there and the people were very crazy. I mean, I had Cindy Lauper and Brett Michaels and Holly Robertson-Pete and Daryl Strawberry and, you know, the Governor Bogoyevich who ended up going to jail, all these crazy characters around me, Sharon Osborne, But... The thing that was so interesting was the nature of the show is you play a game. And as an adult, you don't get to play many games until you have kids. And I didn't have kids at the time. So, you know, you got given these tasks and I just really enjoyed it. It was it was a fun show to be a part of. You know, Trump was, this was back before he had any political aspirations. So, you know, you sort of took him back then on face value, which was, he, he played a bit of a clown and it was just a bit of a show. And so you didn't really read too much into it, I don't think, but it was it was certainly a fun experience. And what else did you learn from that? I mean, as you say, sometimes we have to make choices about our work, our lives, when there's not many other opportunities coming your way. When you left that, yep. did you then think, oh, I've learned this or this is something I'm going to take away or was it just simply fun? No, it was just fun. I don't think I learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, maybe I'll learn a thing or two about reality TV because it's pretty funny living the experience and then seeing how they cut it. And you're like, oh, wow, that's not how it really happened. But okay, fair enough. So, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting experience and it was a fun one. It didn't last long. I mean, I was only there for um, two or three weeks, I think. Yeah, but what, it's still a pretty impressive thing, I reckon, to have on your CV. Now, another real standout on your CV is that you worked for Marco Pierre White. I mean, he's such a power force, isn't he? He's, he's this sort of infamous sort of chef. But you were with him, what, for eight years working in London? I was, yeah. I, I got to London, I think I was probably 22 years old, and I, I started working for Marco the same week that I arrived. I started as a commie, the lowest uh, ranked chef in the brigade, and did everything from sweep up the floor to pick the herbs or the salad leaves that other people would put on the plates. And year after year, you sort of work your way up through that brigade a little bit. And I went to different restaurants that he owned and um, I spent some time in a few different uh, great restaurants. And it was an incredible experience, you know, a very intense environment and it was sink or swim for sure. And, yeah, I, I really, really loved it. Well, you didn't sink at all. I mean, you really swam to the top and... Obviously, you strike me as someone that thrives in those high-pressure, high-risk environments. Yeah, I, I do. I've, I've always enjoyed it. It's funny. My wife and I joke about this. Well, it's not really a joke, but I, I, if I don't run for my aeroplane, if I'm travelling somewhere, it's there's something very abnormal. I'm always living right on that edge. And I think I think that's a kitchen. There's something in a kitchen that you you love being on the edge. And yeah, is it gonna go okay or not? Is a is something that I sort of tend to do well with. 
And Marco's kitchens were the amplified version of that. If someone did something wrong, he could throw them out or send them home or fire them. And it was sort of perfection or nothing. That was kind of the the motto. And you just had to strive for it as much as you could. And sometimes you were the insect and sometimes you were the the windshield. It's sort of you, you did you just you just sort of rolled with the punches. And I've always had pretty thick skin and, and I guess what might offend somebody else doesn't offend somebody. I, I was never one of those ones that got their feelings to hurt. If I if, if I messed something up, I usually knew that I'd done it and I'd know what would be coming and, and that would be okay. Yes, and I think that is the key, though, to have have a thick skin because I'm someone, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd say I have a thin skin, but I am highly sensitive. So if someone was yelling at me or swearing at me or whatever, I would be in the floor in floods of tears going, that's it, it's all over. I'm not suited for a kitchen at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, there's different types of kitchens and that's the beautiful thing. And I do feel like there's there's a kitchen for everybody. There's some kitchens that are very calm and you play classical music and you're not under an intense time pressure and there's others that are just bananas and crazy. I kind of feel like there's room for all of it in life and you've got to choose what you want. I know that we're we're getting a little, I don't know, homogenised in the way that we approach things, I think, and you're like, well, there's all these rules and you can only do one thing. If I was a chef today, Marco wouldn't have been able to run his kitchens the way he did and that would be a real bummer. I think there'd be something really lost there, you know, and I get it. You can't be nasty to people and whatever, but at the same time, it, I've always sort of looked at it like if you if you want to train for the Olympics and you want to try and get yourself a gold medal, well, your coach probably isn't going to say please and thank you every single time he asks you to do a sit-up or a push-up. They're going to push you and, and try and get the absolute most out of you because that's what you've asked them to do. So I don't know. I, I, I sort of think there's a bit more room um, in the world for, for different things. I think that's a, a really fascinating take on it because – and. But it's about working out how different people thrive because if someone was to say please and thank you to me and do all of that, I would win the gold medal. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Different horses for different horses. That's, that's right. the truth. <laughs> exactly. Now, I want to pick up on something you said earlier about how you just love being in the kitchen. At the moment, you know, you said you're loving making the pies because you've had to really sort of change your business model with COVID that sort of struck all of us because your amazing Michelin star restaurant, Maud, has now become the pie room by Gwen. It has. And look, we'll go back to Maud at some point, but we're still in the middle of this thing, aren't we? You know, every time you think you're on your way out of it, you get sucked back into the eye of the storm. And it's a it's a bizarre time, you know, and I think the only way through it is to stay positive and to keep trying new things. And we did just that. We had an empty restaurant that we literally weren't allowed to open. But I had a bunch of chefs that I didn't want to tell them I wasn't going to pay them. I wanted to try and keep the team strong and together as best I could. So we said we had one incredible baker, Amy, her name is. She's just got such a wonderful way with uh, with doughs, breads and pastries and pie crusts. And, and we were actually working on something else and she baked a pie for everyone. I was like, holy crap, Amy, we should just do a pie shop. And she said, I'll do it. And then someone else said, I'll do it. And I was like, let's just do it. So we uh, sort of felt a little bit like the world needed a hug at that moment. And a pie is a pretty nice way to give someone that feeling, whether it's a, uh, a big, beautiful 
oxtail beef pie or whether it's a apple and cinnamon pie, you know. So we sort of we started making sweet and savoury pies and it's been a big hit. People have really liked it. We still sell out every single day. It's crazy. I love that, that, that you sell out every single day. You know, something that is so heartbreaking having to sort of change your business has then, you know, blossomed into this right. something that's sort of sweet and special. It really is. And people come in, you know, it's, I never even really thought about it, to be honest. But of course, being an Aussie, you sort of just start leaning in that direction. So you do more and more savoury pies and sausage rolls have been such a big hit, you know, and all these people from Beverly Hills come in and they're like, what is this thing? You know, and you stand there and explain to them what a sausage roll is and <laughs> it makes me chuckle because it's like, <laughs> you know, it's just so odd. My dad thinks it's so funny. He's an accountant. We've always had this back and forth. My dad, he was, uh, you know, when I first told him I wanted to be a cook because I got the marks to, to go and study law and he was just devastated that I wanted to be a cook. And, you know, we, we sort of, we went back and forth. And then, of course, my career turned out okay. So he's he's happy these days. But now he thinks it's just so, so funny that his, his son who travelled the world and, you know, sought out the best chefs to go and get his butt kicked in their restaurants and now I make a living out of selling sausage rolls. He thinks that's pretty hysterical. <laughs> but there's nothing like a good sausage roll and a party pie. I love a party pie. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And you know what? When you try and explain a party pie to someone, that's even funnier because there's little things that we say in Australia that when you try and tell someone else, well, why is it a party pie? What does that mean? I'm like, well, normally you'd serve it at a party. They're little and you can, it's a cocktail food. And they're like, but you call it a party pie? Like the pie creates the party. My wife's favourite one is the nature strip. I asked her one day why why this road didn't have a nature strip, and she said, what on earth is a nature strip? And I said, what do you mean? The nature strip outside the house, a little strip of grass. And she's like, you call that a nature strip? It's a nature strip. She said it's like something you, you should get at the tanning, at the waxing salon. But, um, I, I, uh, Isn't that a landing strip? <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> now, talking about, you mentioned there your beautiful wife, Lindsay, and I read somewhere that a friend sort of set you up and at the time you weren't really, you were having a great time. You were sort of travelling the world, doing what young fellas do, but then you met Lindsay and things sort of went from there. It's true. We got set up by a friend who was... Uh... She lived in New York and Lindsay and I were both in LA and she tried to convince us both and I don't think either of us were too excited about going on a blind date, but I soon saw a photo of her and I was like, I'll take that blind date. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we keep, we hit it off that night. We really liked hanging out and, yeah, we sort of, we obviously set up another date and one thing led to the next and before you know it, we've got a couple of kids and here I am in LA. Oh, and you've got your two beautiful boys. What sort of dad... Are you? How would you describe your parenting style? Look, it's funny. I, I'm, I had a very strict mum. She didn't take any nonsense, my loza. She was uh, an intense mum, but she was fair. You know, she wasn't, she was also really fun. And I can remember a lot of incredible times with her. And I hope I'm like that for my kids. I don't think of myself as being strict, but then when I do look at some of the other parenting that's around, I probably am on the stricter side because I don't. You know, I think a little bit of discipline is all right. I love being with 
kids. We're always messing around together and having fun. And I think it's all right to break the rules once in a while. So, yeah, we, uh, we enjoy each other's company, that's for sure. Well, I think rules are made to be broken. But when you talk about discipline, in what way would you say you're strict? I try not to have too much uh, technology in our lives. The kids don't have computers or even iPads and certainly not phones and we don't have video games very much in the house. And, um, yeah, I, I think some of their mates just have free slather, you know, do whatever you want to do. And my kids probably think I'm a bit mean because I don't let them have all the same toys their mates have. But, yeah, so technology is a big one for me. So I try and keep away from that as much as I can because I kind of feel like, It'll happen for them anyway and they'll eventually be using all that stuff and whatever. So while they're young and can be outside and exercising and using their brains in, in sort of a pretty simple way, not so much analysing a computer, I guess when I've got a rule, I sort of stick to it and it's sort of no nonsense. And But, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. We've all just got different things, haven't we? You know, like I let my kids tackle each other when we play footy. Uh, and I don't think many parents would, you know, especially over here. When I take them to the park and kick the footy with them, they uh, people stand there staring at us like, oh, my God, <laughs> look at these three. <laughs> a little bit of physical activity is all right. Yeah, of course it is. And also what about with your kids? Because I've got two daughters. I'm a crap housewife. I'm not a great cook. And even though I try my best. And I, I get so tired of like cooking and then they go, I don't like it. I don't want to eat it. I don't want it. So do your kids do that with your cooking? You know, it's funny. My, my first boy, Hudson, he was just a gem. You know, he eats absolutely anything. And I've gardened with him a lot as a kid and, you know, we, we would cook together and I really did think that I had it all figured out. And, you know, you just got to introduce food to your kids at a young age and show them where their food comes from and get them involved in the cooking process and um, Bob's your uncle, they'll eat whatever you put in. And Hudson literally would eat anything. Um, and then along comes my second and I tell you what, that boy, he is a very different child. You know, he just, <laughs> so Emerson will literally sit down He'll push the plate away from him and he'll say, not eating it, and he hasn't even looked to see what's on it. And I'm like, mate, <laughs> it used to drive me insane and now I'm like, fine, don't eat it. You're not getting anything else, you know, and sometimes he will and sometimes he won't. And you're like, I just sort of figure you got to try and stick to your guns a little bit and not cave and give him a bowl of ice cream after. Can't reward him for not eating his dinner. So, yeah, it's not easy though. <laughs> I do love that image though of, of your youngest pushing away a plate that has been prepared by a Michelin star chef. <laughs> yeah, with not eating it attached. It's, uh, that's the kicker. <laughs> See, that offers solace for, for parents everywhere. What I'd like to talk about now is the team that you have around you in your kitchen where you work. And mm. you're involved with an organisation called Chrysalis. Yes, and tell me about what that actually is. Look, it's an incredible organisation that basically give people a hand up. They don't give them a hand out, they give them a hand up and they deal with a lot of different groups of people but probably the biggest one is people that have been in jail. And if you look at the numbers of people that go in and out of prison, it's a tremendous amount of human beings, you know, and I think what generally happens to people that have been incarcerated is they get out of jail, they've probably got their head right while they're in jail and they probably come out with good intentions and quickly they realise they can't get a job, they've got nowhere to sleep, 
they don't really have a bunch of like good positive influences in their phone if they if, if they even have one, and they have no money. And so what do they do? They pretty much go back in many cases to doing what they were doing that got them in jail in the first place. So what Chrysalis try and do is try and get people back into the workforce because their their motto is a job creates the stability that they need for a healthy lifestyle. I went to a fundraiser and I sort of heard their story and I was like, oh, it's interesting. It's we we have roles that you know no one thinks are too sexy in the restaurant business, whether it's washing dishes or peeling onions. There's a lot of things that we have to do all day long. And I thought, you know, we could give someone a chance and and, and give them a second a second go. So I did. I hired a guy. He's still with me. He's been with me for nearly ten years. Um, and we've probably had maybe 30 or so of those chrysalis clients through our kitchens at different times, and they're gems. They're, they're nearly always gems. They're good human beings who have, you know, either had a really rough start in life or maybe they made some bad decisions, um, but whatever it is, the people that we've met and and uh, been able to sort of employ and help back on their road. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little example. There's there's a guy named Byron who works with us. And when he first came to us, he was, he had a couple of kids to different, different um, women. He didn't have anything to do with those kids. Um, he didn't have had a job for a long period of time. He'd been in and out of homelessness. He'd been in and out of jail. And he came and we sort of made him a part of the team. And he, he's been with us for maybe six years now. He's back in the lives of both his kids. He's got a steady girlfriend. He's a real positive influence on those kids' lives. And when you stop and listen to Byron's story and how he was brought up, he didn't have any of those positive influences. And then it's a cycle that just continues to repeat itself. And in an economy like America where the distribution of income and wealth is vast, it's it's unfortunately a cycle. You don't, you don't have to drive very far to drive past the, the tent encampments of, of homeless people. And to see poverty as strong as it is here, it's really, really sad. This is sort of that one little way we could sort of give back a little bit. And it's pretty cool. You know, you've got a guy who... Um, might have done 15 years in prison, standing next to a guy that's done nothing but work in Michelin-starred restaurants and, you know, has the best college education and and somehow watching that team all come together and, and, and work somehow, it's, it's pretty amazing. You've got a big heart. God, I guess I do. It's, um, I, I can be a bit of a sucker for a sob story, but I think you have to have a big heart in life, you know, like, it, it comes and goes so fast and it's it's gone pretty quick and you've, you've got to enjoy yourself and you've got to feel good about what you do in life. And, and don't get me wrong, I've made lots of mistakes in my life too, you know, and you've got to learn from those and you've got to sort of pick yourself back up when something doesn't go your way and, and get on with it. And so, I, I don't know, I, I feel very fortunate and, and sometimes when you get that chance to, to give something back, I think it's important. When you talk about mistakes, we all make them. What are some that I suppose stand out for you? Oh goodness, there's there's so many questions that you have around the way you do things. Right, I work a crazy amount, and sometimes I wonder whether I've got the balance right. You know, because no one's more important to me than my wife, but I probably see more of the people I work with, and I probably see more of a bunch of other people. And you wish that you were at home more. Same thing as being a parent. Well, I probably overcompensate for it a bit because I'm like all those nights in a restaurant 
they're nights that you're not sitting around the dinner table. So you sort of, I, I struggle with that a little bit. Is it being selfish? Are you giving a lot to set a good example? Is it about you? Is it about them? I think there's, uh, goodness, we could sit here all night and talk about my mistakes. It's, it's been plenty. <laughs> but that's what makes us human. And I think our mistakes are what make us the special people that we are. You're right. You're right. It's it's very true, you know. I think getting that, learning that balance and sailing through life with your eyes open, that's the important part. One mistake that, that you did make, and again, as a crap housewife, um, I felt better about myself. The smoke alarms often go off when I cook at home. <laughs> Is it right to say that you almost burnt a kitchen down, Curtis? Well, yeah, I did. I was at Bluebird in London, which was a beautiful restaurant. Wow, it's a triple rated heritage building. It was actually where they built the Bluebird, the, the fastest car in the world. So it was an old garage that had been turned into a beautiful restaurant. And I inherited it. I became the, the chef there for a moment. And <laughs> I didn't get fired because I burned it down, I'll, I'll add. There was a wood fire oven and I thought I'd try and get it as hot as I could and see what I could do in it. And sure enough, there wasn't an appropriate fire void put in above it. So it ignited a fire in the roof. Um, which I couldn't see. I could see the smoke, but I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And by the time we uh, called the fire brigade, it was um, it was well and truly ablaze. So, yeah, they came and we had to call a full-scale evacuation. There was hundreds of people in the building because uh, we were open. It was dinner service. This is like my third day on the job. And it's quite funny when you try and evacuate a restaurant full of people, they think it's a joke. They all just sit there and look at you. You're like, no, I mean, I mean it. Go. Get out. Everyone's going <laughs> to But, yeah, I was working for Terence Conran at the time. I'll never forget it. I, I was so scared to call him and tell him what had happened. But I rang him and I explained it and I was probably, you know, half wiping tears from my face as I explained it because they it was pretty intense what happened to the kitchen. And the first thing he said, is everybody okay? And I said, they are. And he said, then you've done your job. And he put the phone down on me. And I, and I can remember thinking, <laughs> my God, it's, uh, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to the kitchen and we're going to have to close for a period of time to get it all cleaned up and put back together. And all he cared about is, was everyone all right? And uh, that's a pretty cool lesson to learn. Isn't it? Just finally, I would love to know, what is your dream meal? If you could eat anything, what would it be? I'm one of those people that kind of likes the formality still. You know, I know everybody wants restaurants that are casual and relaxed, but I love nothing more than going to a beautiful old restaurant that has multiple courses and multiple wines with different courses. And I grew up cooking French food. So for me, I still love going to France and eating in some of those incredible Parisian restaurants. And, yeah, so it's probably one of those fancy three Michelin star. A lot of people find it stuffy and boring, but I think it's fabulous. (laughs) Well, wouldn't I love to have one of those meals with you, but as long as your caramel slice was served up for my dessert, it would be complete. (laughs) Curtis, thank you. That was fabulous. Really fun. Nice chatting to you. Oh, so great chatting. Curtis is such a great Aussie bloke. Doesn't he have a big heart? But he also has incredible business smarts as well. Now, his latest range of cookware is called Cook with Curtis. I can put my hand up and say, it's fantastic. I've been using it at home. Perfect for my spag bowl, my stir fries. I mean, I'm still a crap housewife. I don't think it's going to change that. But 
It's a really great cookware range. In my next episode, I speak with award-winning actor Faraz Durrani about how he put pressure on himself to please everyone around him at the cost of his own happiness. I guess it was the small voice. I was listening to the little voice, the tiny voice that was saying, there's more to you than this. You've envisioned something bigger than this. Like how much of this people-pleasing do I do? And when is it going to take a toll? And for me, I just said, I have to pump the brakes. I have to jump back and take a look at my life from a different perspective. And that's what I did. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Audio producer, Chris Marsh. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.